Good morning once again. If you have your Bible with you, whether in paper form or, or digital form, go ahead and take that out again. And I want you to go back to where our scripture reading was this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read a verse there in just a moment. Challenging verses. Challenging verses. What are some of the most challenging verses for Christians in the Bible? I think that that is a good thing for us to think about as we begin our lesson this morning. In fact, there are several passages that immediately come to my mind. The first one is John 14 and verse 15. In John 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Luke chapter 9 and verse number 23, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your, your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you. Talk about a challenging verse. Hebrews 13 and verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's a frightening verse both for shepherds or pastors in the church, as well as members of the flock. And what about this passage right here in 1 Peter chapter 3? Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, look back at verse number 15. In 1 Peter 3, in verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify Christ, as Lord in your heart always, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice the charge, the clear charge that is given to the people of God by the Apostle Peter there in that verse. Let me ask you, do you feel, do you feel that right now in your life you could do what that charge suggests? Right now, you can make a defense. Right now, you could adequately and effectively and reasonably defend what you believe. Right now, you're prepared to give an answer to the world for the hope that is in you. Do you feel, really feel that right now in your life you could do that? I'm going to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, when I say that for several years in my life, I felt that I could not do that. I felt that I could not defend my faith. I felt that I could not defend the things that I believed, even though I was doing the same kinds of things that other Christians were doing. Even though I was going to church every single Sunday. Even though I was doing my best to keep my commandments to my family and be faithful to my family and pray and, and, and read my Bible and attend Bible classes and do all kinds of good works towards other, other people, even though I was doing all that kind of stuff and so much more deep down inside, in my heart, I still felt that I couldn't do what Peter's talking about there in that verse. I still felt that I could not effectively 
give an answer for my faith. I still felt that I could not re really reasonably tell the lost around me why I believed the things that I believed. You see, for many years in my life, I really had a blind faith. I really had a faith that wasn't rock solid and strong and my own. Instead, it was the kind of faith that led me to believe in the things that I believed just because I wanted to believe them. Just because I wanted to believe in those things. Just because I wanted to believe that those things were true. Just because I wanted to, to do the things that my grandmother raised me to do. You see, unfortunately, that's how weak and feeble and pathetic my faith was for a time in my life. The question though is, is what about, what about you? What about your life? What about your faith? Well, why do you believe the things that you believe? Well, why do you believe the things that you believe? For example, why, well, why do you believe in God? Well, why do you believe in God? Particularly, why do you believe in the God of the Bible? Why do you believe that the God of the Bible is the one true and living God? Why do you believe that that God is real? Why do you believe that that God is the creator? That is a question, my friends, that a lot of people may likely ask you in your life today. And who would have ever thought that, right? Who would have ever imagined that? Who would have ever thought that we would be in a position where we as Christians would have to actually be prepared to give an answer for why we believe in God? I mean, think about it. Think about it. We live in America. What we live in, what's supposed to be a Christian nation, we live in a country where for hundreds and hundreds of years, the vast majority of people at least believed in God. They at least believed in a, in a creator. I mean, for those of you who are more seasoned in life and in the faith, I want to ask you something. I want you to think about life 40 years ago. 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I mean, 40, 30, even 20 years ago, did you ever feel like you have to be prepared to give an answer to this question right here? Did you ever feel like you, had, you would have to be prepared to give an answer as to why you believe the first verse of the Bible is true? I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and college, and even when I first started preaching about 15 years ago, it was just assumed that everybody at least believed in God. Everybody at least believed in a creator. In fact, just a little over 10 years ago, poll after poll after poll demonstrated that at least nine out of 10 people in this country believed in God. At least 90% of people in this country admitted to believing in God about 10 years ago, but today, today, that number is down. That number is declining. It is declining rapidly. In fact, it is declining rapidly, especially among people like this right over here. It is declining rapidly, especially among people in this age bracket right over here. And so why? 
Why, young people, do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe the God of the Bible is the one true and living God? And then secondly, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in the incredible claims that are, that are found about Jesus in the Bible? Why do you believe he's the son of God? Why do you believe he's the Christ? Why do you believe he's the Lord? Why do you believe what he says in John 14 and verse 6 when he says, I am the way and, and the truth and the life? I mean, do you believe in those claims merely because you were raised to believe those claims? Do you believe those claims merely because you want them to be true or because you feel that they are true or because maybe Jesus just claimed that they are true? If that's the case, then what about the over one billion people in the world right now who are Muslims and they don't believe that? What about what about all the Muslims? What about all the Hindus? What about all the Buddhists? What about all the Jehovah's Witnesses? What about all the Mormons? What about all the people who don't believe in any kind of religious leader at all? What makes your belief right and theirs wrong? Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Jesus? And why do you also believe in Jesus' standard for morality? Why do you believe that Jesus' standard for morality is the right standard. I mean, what makes his standard so right? What makes his standard so true? Why do I need to abide by his standard? Why do I need to abide by the standard he has given me to love my spouse and be faithful to my spouse? Why do I need to do that? Why do I need to abide by his standard concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Why do I need to avoid lying and greed and covetousness? Why do I need to forgive others? Why do I need to love all people and even pray for people who hate me and want what is worse for me? Why do I need to treat other people like I want to be treated? Young people, why do you need to obey and submit to the authority of your parents? Why can't you just do whatever you want to do? What do you tell people when they ask you, why do you believe that the standard of Jesus for morality is the right standard? And what do you also tell people when they just ask you about the Bible? What do you tell people when they ask you, how can you be so sure that the Bible is God's word? I mean, what makes the Bible so special? What makes the Bible the word of God and not the Quran? or the Hindu scriptures, or the Book of Mormon? Why should a person believe the Bible? Why should a person believe the incredible stories that are found in the Bible? Stories like a man building an ark to preserve both he and his family from a global flood. Stories like Jonah spending three days and the belly of a fish, stories like God miraculously parting the Red Sea and God causing the sun miraculously to stand still in the sky in the days of Joshua and talking donkeys and talking serpents and even an occasion when God turned a woman into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed his commandments? How can you be so sure that all that is true? 
How can you be so sure that the Bible is the word of God? And how can you be so sure that there's a heaven and a hell? How can you be so sure that your beliefs about the afterlife are right? How can you be so sure that the Hindus belief about reincarnation after death is not right? How can you be so sure, sure that what the Buddhists believe about nirvana is not right? How can you be so sure that the atheists are not right when they say that there's nothing more to come after you die? They say that you have one life to live and that's it. Once you die, there is nothing more to come. So you need to live your life to the fullest right now. What makes your belief right and theirs wrong? And what about these questions that people ask us about suffering? What about these questions like, well, if there is a God who is so good and so loving, then how come there's so much suffering in the world? How come there's so much injustice in the world? How can there be so much evil in the world? How can a good and, and loving God sit back and allow little children to be kidnapped and abused and molested and raped and even killed in things like drive-by shootings? You see, in the minds of many people, because there's so much suffering and injustice and evil in the world today, then there must, that must mean that there is no God. There is no creator. There is no one out there who is higher than us. What I just want you to see is these. These are critical questions. These are important questions. These are questions that exceed the trivial things we would like to know, like what exactly was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden? Or where exactly was the Garden of Eden located? Or where exactly did Cain get his wife from? Or what exactly happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Or even what is the true origin of the devil? You see, unlike those really just trivial questions that are designed to do nothing more than satisfy our curiosity. These questions right here, these questions really challenge us. These questions really challenge us to examine our faith and our beliefs. They really challenge us to investigate why we believe the things that we believe. What are we going to tell the people in the world when they want to know about the foundation stones of our faith? Why do you believe? Why do you believe that your beliefs about these kinds of questions are true? As we transition into the second part of this lesson, can I tell you why I believe that my beliefs as a Christian in regards to these things are true? Can I tell you the main reason why I believe my beliefs are true and why you should believe that your beliefs are true as a Christian? Can I tell you the main reason why I know that Christianity is right? And the Bible is right and Jesus is right. The main reason why I believe the things that I believe is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is why I believe the things that I believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the battleground for my faith. It is where my faith and where your faith stands or falls. It is where our faith is either proven to be true or absolutely false. If you don't get anything else away from this sermon, I want you to take that home with you. And I want you to talk with your kids about that. I want you to help your kids understand that if the resurrection of Jesus is really true, if a man really did come out of the tomb, then that means everything else in the Bible is true. That means everything else in the Bible is validated. That means everything else in the Bible is confirmed. If you don't believe me when I say that, will you at least believe the apostles? Will you at least understand that the apostles understood that all throughout their preaching? Go in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Maybe you've noticed this before. I hope you have. But the main thing that is emphasized in every sermon, every sermon preached by a prophet or a New Testament apostle, the main thing emphasized was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ more than they talked about anything else. They knew that Christianity was going to stand or fall on the resurrection. This is why Peter in Acts chapter 2, when he's given this opportunity to talk to these hostile Jews, many of whom were there mocking Jesus and taking pleasure in seeing him suffer on the cross. In Acts chapter 2, after telling them about how Jesus... On the day of Pentecost here, in front of these thousands of Jews, after he told them that Jesus did miracles that they knew about, and he had died on a cross, in verse number 24 of Acts 2, verse 24, he says, but God raised him up again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we, we, Peter says, we're witnesses of that. Peter here is emphasizing the resurrection. He is saying that you can know, according to verse 36, that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ because of the empty tomb. He came out of the tomb. He emphasizes that here in Acts 2. And he emphasized that in Acts 3 and in Acts 4 and in Acts chapter 5. It's found in Acts 13. It's found in Acts 17. It's found all over the place in the book of Acts. And look at John's writings, please. Go to Revelation. I say, oh, I bet y'all know, I know what y'all are saying. This boy taking us to Revelation. I'm so sick of Revelation. But go to Revelation with me one more time. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 17. Revelation 1 and verse 17. Listen to what John said at the beginning of Revelation. He says, John 1, 17. This is the Apostle John. Remember, he wrote Revelation. He says, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now we've made the point that Revelation is a difficult book. Lots of signs and symbols, apocalyptic language, all that stuff. There's a lot of difficult stuff in Revelation. But this right here is not difficult. This is not hard. This is clear and easy to understand. John says, I saw a risen Jesus. 
I saw Jesus raised from the dead. That's how he starts Revelation. And then go to the Gospel of John, please. Look at John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, in the context of what I'm going to show you, we're going to start reading with verse 30 in just a moment. But before you get to verse 30, the in the verses that precede this, in the, in the above verses, we find the occasion when Thomas examined the risen body of Jesus. Remember that? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe until I see him raised from the dead. I want to see him. I want to touch him. Well, Jesus, Jesus obliged him. He, he let him do that. He let him see his risen body. He let him examine it with his hands. Thomas touched where the nails had been driven and where the spear had, had pierced him. He touched the risen body of Jesus, and after that, he believed that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And in verse number 30, it says, therefore. Therefore is connecting us back to the previous verses. The previous verses about Thomas and the examination of the resurrection. Therefore, many other signs. Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says here, there's a lot of other stuff that Jesus did after being raised. But, but, but what he has written here in the Gospel of John, particularly what he said about how Jesus was being seen by the apostles and how he was examined by people like Thomas, that's there for a reason. That is there to give us the evidence we need to believe in the identity of Jesus. John says that in the last two verses here, and he also says that in the last two verses of the next chapter. Look at verse 24 of chapter 21. In verse number 24 of chapter 21, it says, this, this, this is the disciple. That's John referring to himself there. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that would be written. And there's a lot we could say just about those two verses right there. But for now, in this lesson, just notice how John is making the case there that he's an eyewitness. He says he's an eyewitness. He's an eyewitness of Jesus. He's an eyewitness of all the things that you read about in the Gospel of John. He says he saw Jesus. He says he saw what Jesus looked like. He saw his miracles. He heard his preaching. He was there in the garden with him when he was betrayed and arrested. He was there for those corrupt trials. He was there for the crucifixion. He saw the spear driven in his side. He saw him taken down from the cross and, and, and buried in a tomb. And most importantly, he saw him raised three days later. John says he's an eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and his eyewitness testimony was written down and preserved in the gospel so that we can have the historical evidence we need to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. John makes the case 
for the resurrection through eyewitness testimony. And then look over at the next book, Acts. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke, the great physician. He says this in Acts 1 and verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke, like John, is talking about the eyewitness testimony. He is saying that the eyewitness testimony that is found in the gospel concerning the resurrection of Jesus is designed to be proof. It is designed to be convincing proof. You see, like our judicial system today, even in this time, even in the time of the first century, there was an understanding by the people in society that eyewitness testimony was evidence of the first kind. It was the best evidence that you could provide in a court of law. Luke says that there is eyewitness testimony to the fact that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seen all over the place for about 40 days preaching about the kingdom of God. Paul will elaborate on that further in 1 Corinthians 15. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look at what Paul says here, beginning with verse number 3. In verse 3, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, For I deliver to you as of first importance, this issue I'm talking with you about, this is an issue of first importance. I delivered up to, uh, to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Look at verse number 12. In verse 12, Paul says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Notice how some of the Corinthians, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul says that's ridiculous. Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're all men most to be pitied. Look at what Paul is saying there. Paul there is telling us what it's all about. He's telling us what it's all about. He's talking about the key components of the gospel. He's talking about the, the key issues that bind us together as a spiritual family and confirm that Christianity is the truth. He says that we can know 
that our faith is true, not just because Jesus died on a cross and was buried. There were a lot of people who died on crosses and were buried during that time, but only Jesus was raised from the dead. Only Jesus came out of the tomb. The empty tomb is what it's all about. Jesus, he came out of the tomb on Sunday morning, even though a lot of people tried to stop that from happening. And he was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people throughout Galilee. And many of those people were willing to die telling the world about what they saw. What well, I just want you to see, as Paul says, it's all about the resurrection. It's all about that empty tomb on Sunday morning. That's the key foundation stone to our faith. That's the place where we need to go when we're talking to people about why we believe what we believe. We believe what we believe ultimately. Because unlike any other religion, our leader, Jesus, he was raised from the dead. I believe because of the res resurrection of Jesus. I believe in God because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus was raised, I know God is real. I know he's the creator. I know the first verse of the Bible is true. Because Jesus put his stamp of approval on the creation account throughout the book of Genesis, and because he came out of that tomb, I may not be a physicist. And I may not be a biologist or a geologist or an, or an astrologist. I may not have a bunch of PhDs after my name. But one thing I do know is I know how it all got started. I know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I know that because Jesus said so and he was raised from the dead. I believe that God is real. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, and I also believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be because he was raised from the dead. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4. In Romans 1 and verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection confirms that he's everything he claimed to be. It verifies his identity. It verifies that he is the son of God and he's the Lord and he's the Christ and he's the way, the truth, and the life. It verifies that Christianity is the truth. It verifies that the Muslims are wrong, the Hindus are wrong, the Buddhists are wrong. Anyone who is not following Jesus fully, they are wrong. The resurrection verifies the identity of Jesus, and it also verifies his standard for morality. You see, since an ordinary man would not be raised from the dead, then you know what that means? That means that the moral standard given by Jesus is right. It is the right standard. It's right for me, and it's also right for you. In fact, not only does Jesus' resurrection verify his standard for morality, but it also verifies the Bible, period. It also verifies all the great stories that are found in the Bible, as incredible as they may seem to believe, since the Lord presented those stories in his ministry as real and historical facts. Since he was raised from the dead, you know what that means? That means that's exactly what they are. That means that they are real, 
historical facts. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Noah or Jonah or the talking serpent or the talking donkey or even the occasion when a woman turned into a pillar of salt. The resurrection verifies the stories of the Bible. It verifies that the Bible is the word of God, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It verifies that the Quran is insufficient. The Book of Mormon is insufficient. The Hindu scriptures are insufficient. If Jesus really raised from the dead, then any book beyond the Bible that claims to come from God is a lie. It's nothing more than a product from the mind of men. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's why I believe that the Bible has to be the word of God. And because Jesus was raised from the dead and seen all over the place, that's why I also believe in heaven and hell. Even though I've never spent time in heaven or hell. Even though I've never spoken to anyone who spent time in heaven or hell. Even though I don't know what either place looks like or feels like. One thing I do know is because Jesus raised from the dead, they both have to exist. They have to exist because he preached about both of those places all throughout his ministry. In fact, he spoke more about hell than any other preacher in the Bible. Because he was raised from the dead, I can believe with all my heart that there's more to come after this life. And as far as the tough questions about suffering and evil and injustices in this life go, even though I believe, and, and you probably could as well, we could sit down with people. We could go through all these different verses that talk about suffering and injustice, and, and we could talk about all that stuff for several hours. But the fact of the matter is, it still doesn't change anything about the resurrection. Yeah, we can sit down and talk with people for hours about suffering and all that stuff, but the resurrection is still what it's all about. Regardless of how I feel about suffering, how you feel about suffering, regardless of how we feel about evil and injustice, regardless of the 10 people who may come up to me and say, well, Sean, I will say this about suffering. I will say that about suffering. Look, Jesus still died and he was buried in a tomb and he came out three days later. People still got to answer that, regardless of how they feel about suffering. You still got to give an answer to that. Regardless of any controversial questions people ask, what I just hope you can see is the resurrection is the key. It is the key. It is the battleground for our faith. It is where we must lean whenever we start having doubts. It is what we must meditate and ponder on whenever we get discouraged and we feel like giving up on our faith. It is where we must turn to first when people come up to us and they ask us, hey, why do you believe? Why do you believe these kinds of things? The resurrection is what it's all about. But you know, even after saying all that, and don't worry, we're getting ready to close, but even after saying all that, People are still not done with us. People still want to know more. Our children want to know more. There are other questions people have for us, like, okay, why are you a member of the church that you're a member of? What makes your church so special? Why are you a member of the Church of Christ? 
And why do you believe what you believe about the local church? Why is the local church so important? I got, I've known so many Christians who've asked me that. Why should I have to place membership at a local church? Why is it that important? And I know you say you believe in the Bible. I know you say you believe the Bible is the word of God and Jesus' resurrection confirms that. But, but how can you be so sure that it hasn't been corrupted? How can you be so sure that in the Bible we really have everything that God wants us to have? How can you be so sure that there are not any missing books? And how exactly does God give us instructions in the Bible? How does God tell us what to do? And what do we do when God doesn't say anything? What do we do when God is silent about a matter? I mean, is God's silence permissible? And when exactly does a person reach the age of accountability? This is a question that young people have, parents have. How do I know when my child's at that point when they need to start thinking about obeying the gospel? And what about this question? What happens when you die? What happens when you exit out of this life? That may be the question I'm asked more as a preacher than any other question. What kind of answers you give people when they ask you this stuff? What do you say to people when they give you, when they ask you these kinds of questions? I mean, are you prepared to give them good answers? You prepared to give them Bible answers? You prepared to do what Peter says and give them a reason for the hope that is in you? If not, if you feel like you're, you struggle with questions like this, well, I want you to know something. I, I want to try to help you with that, okay? In fact, I want to help you with that over the next few weeks. For over the next few weeks, I want us to embark on a sermon series that is designed to answer questions like this, questions about the church, questions about the work of a church, questions about the Bible and Bible authority, questions that even parents need to be talking with their children about. I want us to talk about these kinds of things over the next few weeks, and don't you worry, we're also going to be sprinkling in our rising above lessons and our Bible reading lessons. We're going to stay focused on that kind of stuff as well. Let's try to answer these questions together. And so I hope you'll join me for that. For now, though, just hang on to the resurrection. Will you hang on to the resurrection? But you understand that the resurrection verifies everything that we believe about the Bible. It verifies that God is real. It verifies the identity of Jesus. And it verifies that salvation is only found in Jesus. In fact, maybe there's someone here this morning, and you say, I'm ready to become a follower of Jesus. I'm ready to believe in him and confess my belief and repent of my sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. If that is a desire you have this morning, my friend, we want to help you with that. If you're ready to act on your faith and you come to the front right now, let's stand, let's sing.